You're listening to a ComicsXF podcast. WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the ComicsXF interview podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guests are the creators of the new series Smash, coming in November from Rebellion, Paul Grist and Anna Morozova. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you for <laughs> inviting us. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So we'll start with our usual first question. What are some of the first comics that either of you remembers reading? Uh, Anna, why don't we start with you? With me? First comics I remember reading? Oh, God. Um, Well, to be quite honest, I've never been really like a massive, like, reading comics fan. Okay, I've always been a massive like fan of art sure. and artwork. So I would buy like any magazines or anything that was published that contained like really beautiful illustrations, imagery. Sometimes it would involve comics. I think the only kind of continuous comic I've read when growing up, it was um, a Disney's comic, Witch. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. It was illustrated by some amazing Italian talent. Um, Barbara Canepa and Alessandro Barbucci, if I remember correctly. They were kind of, if I'm not wrong, if I'm not wrong. Uh, That was the comic I remember that I would buy often because it was available. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I only became familiar with 2000 AD when I actually moved to the UK for studies. Mm -hmm. So this is when I got first introduced into that scene. And this is when I started kind of picking up on comics more often and just occasionally buying them next to my workplace, next to my like university, you know, so it would be like random things, absolutely random. Like from 2008, I remember I was absolutely mesmerized by the Nemesis collection, Nemesis the Warlock, um, by Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill, like that first volume that was absolutely incredible. Um, That, yeah, that (laughs) really changed the way I read comics. Um, sometimes I would like buy just like random entertainment pieces as well, like some stuff from DC, some stuff from Marvel. Uh, particularly enjoyed Harley Quinn <laughs> uh, due to like really, really like interesting artwork, really, really fun, really entertaining. You didn't have to like pull much of the storyline; <laughs> to be pretty random most of the time. But yeah, yeah, that would be the the answer, I would say. Okay, Paul, how about you? Uh, I kind of, uh, I I had uh, an older brother, and so I had uh, kind of grew up with comics. He was already reading comics, getting comics in, and so I I kind of got his comics. I got some of his friends' comics, so I I kind of had, I saw like sort of uh, uh, sort of things like uh, Superboy comics that, uh, sort of some of his friends got the main kind of thing that uh, our first comic I remember getting would have been something like uh, Countdown, which was basically a, a sort of a sort of a comic about sort of uh, Jerry Anderson's super uh, uh, future sort of stories like Captain Scarlet Thunderbirds, and it also had Doctor Who in it. So that was one of the big draws for me. It had Doctor Who in it, uh, sort of. And then, sort of, there was also uh, so around the same time, uh, sort of, I was also aware of 
other British characters, British comics, which were like the more, more traditional black and white comics, uh, which were things like, uh, which would contain the stories of uh, people like the, the characters like the spider and uh, the steel claw and robot Archie, which is kind of what uh, Smash is all about. And then sort of from uh, sort of uh, Countdown, I moved on to Marvel UK. So, so it's basically, it's been Marvel superheroes uh, sort of through, through that. And then sort of moving on to American comics later on, when I, I realized that you could actually buy full color uh, comics, not just the, the black and white reprints that we were getting in the UK. Just out of curiosity, uh, which is your doctor of choice? What number uh, doctor? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, probably uh, Tom Baker or John Pertwee. Three or four. Yeah, people love them. Uh, so you're here to talk about Smash, and I have to I have to pronounce the exclamation point. <laughs> uh, three issue series debuting November 29th from uh, Rebellion, uh, along with uh, Tom Foster and Simon Boland. Uh, Matt, take us into the madness. In Victorian London, when Janice Stark traps a demon in a stone idol, he creates a prize too alluring for criminal masterminds to resist. And 60 years later. The King of Crooks organizes his crime syndicate to heist the statuette. However, the Steel Claw and Jane Bond, no relation, are assigned to halt the theft, but they encounter a mysterious stranger who throws both sides' plans into disarray. So what is the origin of this project? How did you guys get involved with this? Well, uh, sort of uh, the editors basically contacted me, emailed me and, and said, would I be interested? So uh, I said, yes, yes, please. In fact, it's as simple as that. It's, it's just an email which came out of nowhere. I it was totally unexpected. As it usually happens, yeah, my story is pretty much the same. Um, I got contacted by Oliver Pickles and he suggested this project for me. And by that time, I was already familiar with the characters, even though I did say that, you know, like I wasn't very familiar with the British comics when I was growing up. But when I, I was, when I started my work in comics, I obviously started my research as well. And, and like tons of like really interesting material uh, came my way. And I remember seeing the Spider comic, and I remember being actually really fascinated by the character, because I really enjoyed the design first, and I really enjoyed the premise. Um, I was familiar with Steel Claw as well. I was familiar with Jane Bond. Um, it's quite funny, at the university, we had this um, uh, like story that happened to one of my coursemates, because uh, when I was doing my master's in graphic novels and comics, like art degree, uh, <laughs> a coursemate of mine, she wanted to make a comic about Jane Bond as well. Like she just came up with a character called Jane Bond and she couldn't believe that such character already existed. So our course director actually had to convince her and rename the character she wanted to do into Jane Blonde. <laughs> so eventually the compromise was achieved. So yes, I was familiar with the characters and I was absolutely like over the moon, I must say, because um, Spider was the most fascinating for me to work on. So that to me was like, you know, like I answered the email probably in a minute's time was like, yes, just please come in. 
And when I got to know that it would be written by Paul Grist as well, you know, um, like my, I have like a very good circle of friends who are huge, huge comics fans, and they are like me, they grew up with British comics. So when I mentioned this, like many friends of mine were like, oh, no way, Paul Grist, you're going to be working with Paul Grist, you know. So, yeah, that, that was an immediate yes for me, you know. <laughs> Paul, how's it feel to know that kids love you? Oh, well, it, it's, it's nice to know they're still reading. <laughs> they are. No, but uh, you, you mentioned, Anna, that you were drawn to the spider. Uh, what about that character in particular? Oh, like the design of him, honestly. Like the, not just the visual part, but this sharpness, like absolutely fascinated me. You know, he's a sharp character, like all around. Like he's characteristics, both physical, mental, intellectual capabilities, you know, like, and the, this is the character whose appearance is just so distinctive, you immediately know pretty much who you're dealing with, even though not really, he's got like quite many dimensions to him, you know, he's, but like, it's just from the comics that I've seen, you know, and I did do my research. Obviously, I was familiar with the character, but when I got involved in the project, I ordered more stuff. I looked at more books. Um, and it was just incredible to see how, like, many artists would have a like, slightly different approach to him. You know, he's not an easy character to draw as well. The costume is quite sophisticated. But you can always recognize him. You can always, like, just, he's iconic, I would say. So to an artist, I think this is like one of like to me at least this is the, the kind of the perfect character to get to work on because you can do so much without really changing him. But he's like face, his appearance, his design, like you can you can do many creative things there. And he's the character who um, requires motion in a way, motion either like in space, like physical or his facial features, they can be very moody. So there's like a lot of, like, to get your teeth into. So to me, that was like, yes, this is the character I want to draw, especially the eyes, the eyebrows, the hair. I want to be drawing that. This comic promises to bring together, you know, a whole host of, of pre-existing uh, British comics characters, you know, and, and you've both talked about, you know, uh, Paul, I know you've got familiarity with these characters on, I know you did a bunch of research and, and, and news to them already. You know, were there any in putting together the project that you didn't know about that in learning more about them, you were like, oh, well, I quite like this one. Well, for, for me, uh, sort of, uh, uh, sort of the usage of uh, Jane Bond in the first issue was like editorially asked for because they uh, sort of I've, I've, the the comics that I was familiar with were essentially the boys' comics, and sort of and, and obviously there's a big gender divide with with comics in the 1960s. It's it's like well there were girls' comics and there were boy comics, and I was reading the boys' comics, and so there was stuff happening in the girls' comics that I was totally unaware of. And one of those things was Jane Bond, and so uh, uh, when but obviously when they they were uh, sort of uh, proposing the idea, they wanted to to like have female characters in as well. They the, the wanted a mix, which was quite difficult because obviously they were drawing primarily on the characters who were coming from the boys' comics side of things. 
which was the spider, the seal claw, Robert Archie, all those were like traditionally coming from the boys' comics. So, uh, so they, they very much wanted to kind of use uh, like one of the girl characters, which was Jane Bond, who I'd never read before, uh, sort of. So I had no idea about. But so I, I sort of uh, had to look up a few things about her. Otherwise, oh, that's great. It's, it's kind of like she kind of fitted into the, the kind of like nineteen. 60s kind of spy vibe that I wanted to go with uh, the steel claw. So yeah, they, they seem to be like an, a natural pairing. And so much so that uh, sort of when I'd, I'd finished the, the first issue, I kind of uh, thought, well, I'm gonna have to bring her back. Uh, sort of, so, so she returns in the final issue, in the modern day issue, uh, sort of uh, just to finish off the story. Jane Bond will return. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about you, Anna? Did you know? Was there? We talked a lot about the spider already, but was there like a new favorite that you came out of this project with? Huh. Well, you see, um, I would say that it would be quite natural for me to be excited about one Jane Bond, especially considering the portfolio that I've gathered up to date. Um, I'm kind of naturally more drawn to drawing like female characters, which is not uncommon. Um, but my portfolio does help work on um, male characters as well. So, of course, I was like excited to draw Jane Bond. You know, like when I realized, like when I was essentially given the list of the characters that would appear. I was like, oh, Jane Bond, that's so nice. And the fact that it's set in the 60s, you know, 60s is like a really beautiful era to work with. There's a lot of inspiration that can be gathered as well. So I did enjoy working on her, but it was like, like it wasn't particularly challenging for me because I'm used to draw kind of similar like characters, if you will. Um, yeah, I would definitely say this. Either would still be my favorite, and I would say that Steel Claw is quite an elusive character for me. Uh, he's an elusive character in general, <laughs> you know, he disappears, uh, he becomes invisible. So, that was pretty much kind of the case for me as well. Because, like, like the, from the comics that I've looked at, from the comics I have researched when I was given material, something I gathered myself as well, he is. This is the right word. He's pretty elusive. There is not much to his actual human appearance. Like the most distinctive feature is the actual steel claw. And in many panels, he just doesn't appear himself. <laughs> like you don't really see him. So he doesn't really have that very specific design, if you will. He's supposed to look as a man coming from that very certain era. And he doesn't have to have like, something really especially memorable about it apart from his supernatural abilities. So that was kind of, I wouldn't say challenging to work on him, but um, there wasn't much kind of, he's the character that doesn't give you much brief. So you're kind of free to do um, whatever as, as an artist, I believe. But um, I hope I hope I managed to capture him on, from that era. <laughs> um, something nice about the hairstyle, something like just costumes. And by the way, costumes are very difficult to draw. I must say that, that is very tricky. Like suits and 
and shorts, weirdly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I would say that I enjoyed working on all of the characters. Uh, Spider, of course, was, was fascinating to look at as a reader. It was fascinating to work on as an artist. When you just have to draw the claw and not the rest of the person, is that, does that make it any easier? It kind of does, you know, just time-wise gives you time, <laughs> really. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, th I think there's, like, more creative stuff you can possibly do with him. Like, obviously, like, I'm, I'm still relatively new, you know, I have, like, so many things to learn. Um, and it's, it was interesting to see how other artists would like cope with this challenge because there's so many ways you can draw invisibility, if you will. You can like some artists would just draw a claw, just floating around. Some artists would actually draw in the figure and wipe it out from the black um, background. So essentially drawing in the negative, no in reverse, like white thing or something. So there are many creative ways you can approach it. So you can either simplify your job, you can always make it more complicated. Because I believe drawing in reverse and negative would be way more complicated. You know, plus there's so many ways you can play with space as well. You can be very creative. And it's always the case. Like once you finish the project, you look at your pages and you're like, you have this genius idea and you're like, I should have done that in the first place. <laughs> like that would be even smarter than what I did, you know. So I would say that he's a character who is, yes, elusive, but at the same time he can give an artist um like a nice area to experiment with. now paul i don't know if you know do, you know were all the rights to these characters already in-house at rebellion you know are, are any of them public domain or did someone have to go kind of fishing around for them to make sure that that you could use them well uh, uh sort of uh, the story is uh that uh, basically the the uh, rights were split across various comic companies and basically they they were kind of uh, lost forgotten about because nobody was really that bothered about them because they they were like old characters from the 1950s 1960s 1970s and uh, sort of uh, being published by different comics and sort of uh, and and sort of various comics have been bought out by other comics and so the whole thing became rather messy uh, rebellion kind of went out and basically bought everything. So they bought the entire British comics library of everything that had been published over a period of time by Fleetway Comics and various sort of other comic companies that had been subsumed by Fleetway. And so they, they got the rights to the, the Spider and the Steel Claw. And up to that point, sort of, uh, that their sort of uh, their ownership had, had sort of been rather grey, but nobody had really bothered because, like I say, nobody was really actually, you know, sort of apart from like a very uh, a sort of lively time during the nineteen sixties and seven early seventies, the uh, the characters had been forgotten about. They they they've been published during that time. The 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 stories have been uh, sort of reprinted. Uh, in, in several kind of, uh, uh, sort of times, but really sort of uh, ever since certainly the late 70s, they, the, there'd been no comics published 
in the UK about these characters. So nobody was like sort of arguing over who who owned them or not, or always really cared about them. So Matt, I this is one of those fun episodes where, you know, uh, I get to prove how much of a comics Luddite I am. Uh, but, you know, have you encountered any of these characters uh, in your reading? Only once. These characters, again, they've not popped up in the States very much. Mm-hmm. One time was back in the mid to late aughts. Uh, Wildstorm did a miniseries called Albion from Leah Moore with a plot assist from her father, this little guy you might have heard of named Alan Moore. You know, he, oh, you mean the original author? Oh, yes, that guy. Um, <laughs> that I remember that series. That's about it. I remember uh, the spider was in there, Robot Archie, I think Steel Claw. But it wasn't all of them that I saw here. And I think there were others. It's been a long... I mean, again, I read that in 2007. So 16 years, it, the, the fo- uh, fog of time. <laughs> but yeah, it, that's the closest I came to having much exposure to any of these these guys. Yeah, that that's what happened when uh, DC uh, uh, sort of basically uh, sort of I, I think they they realized that they owned the characters for some reason, or like sort of they uh, that they had some ownership of them. And uh, so, so they they kind of, uh, uh, sort of u- used it and, and sort of uh, to to publish uh, sort of that the the Albion series, but sort of uh, it, it suffered a little bit. I, I felt from trying to put everything into one comic, uh, and sort of which was like sort of uh, which was it's like very confusing if that's going to be your first. Uh, sort of uh, uh, introduction to the characters because you've got absolutely no it, it, no reason to kind of uh, be interested in them and sort of uh, and yet the, the actual story itself relied quite a lot on your familiarity with them and unless you were like sort of uh, growing up in the 1960s or 70s in the UK you would have absolutely no familiarity with them so it was quite, quite a difficult sell it's no, but it had Alan Moore there, so right. That, that oh yeah, and no offense to Alan Moore, a writer who I love, but his a lot of his stuff from that era felt very much like that. Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Black Dossier, which is a hundred years of British pop culture. That if you weren't British, you needed those that Jess Nevin's book of annotations yeah. sitting next to you to figure. Okay, so this is, has to be an existing character because there's no way anybody's coming up with anything this racist and offensive at this point. That that has to be something from the, the, the 30s. And usually you were right. Uh, so, Paul, you've worked with existing characters and existing universes before. Is there a difference with working with these characters whose history is a little more malleable than something like uh, working in the Hellboy universe with Mike Mignola or with Grendel. And yes, as our listeners know, if I have a chance to ask anything involving Grendel, I will. <laughs> well, I mean, so those I was I was working on as an artist, purely as the artist on those those series. So 
so so basically my job was just to kind of uh, draw the thing appropriately and, and sort of ho hopefully add some visual interest to it so uh sort of uh, it, it's kind of uh, a lot easier to step into that and it, it's 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 sort of uh, it's that there's a lot of freedom in working with these characters simply because they haven't really got apart from this this sort of period of time in the 60s and 70s they haven't really got any history and and sort of what they they had was was like sort of uh, it's only known by sort of certain people who are quite frankly that old they don't care about these things anymore and so so it, it's like a rich vein of uh characters and and sort of things that haven't really been read or appreciated by readers nowadays so so it's, it's like there's a whole new universe for them to find out about and to be introduced to and you don't really have to worry too much about how much you know and I as a writer don't have to worry about how much I know or don't know because it's, it's like sort of uh, uh, there aren't going to be that many people who are going to pick me up on what's happened whereas for instance uh, sort of uh, uh, writing becomes more difficult when you've got a lot of history you've, you and you've got what sort of uh, things which might be appropriate to the story you want to tell and other things that aren't and so you try and ignore or sidestep and then sort of uh, readers will come in and say ah but what about this happened to that character then and so sort of, but now you're having them do something completely different uh you know it's it, it's that that makes it more difficult when you've got something like a marvel or, or or dc universe where they've got a very long consistent history or inconsistent history that that's been going on for you know 60 70 80 years and trying to tie that all together is, is a lot more complicated how many how many versions of these characters or analogs of these characters did you get to play with uh, in Jack Staff? Well, basically, I, I kind of uh, uh, when I was doing Jack Staff, uh, that that was kind of like the, the the title character himself was a variation on Marvel's Union Jack, yeah. and uh, basically, I wanted to have a character. I, I wanted to do. To, to do something with the uh, uh, sort of uh, with the Fleetway characters, and uh, because at this point, which was like two thousand, I figured uh, sort of it had been over twenty five years since these characters had been used, and nobody really cared about them. They they weren't being printed in the comics, and sort of nobody was really using them. So I thought, well, uh, sort of the. Uh, I may as well use them or variations on them because obviously they, I sort of bit so so I, I I did my variation on the spider I did my variation on the steel claw my variation on Adam Eterno and uh, sort of probably a few others as well that I forget uh, and there, there's a, a freedom to be able to with that to be able to kind of do to kind of uh, to, to uh, uh, sort of rip uh, to do something that was similar enough that people who were old enough to recognise the characters would be 
would realise what I was doing, but yet was, wasn't was relying on people knowing who the characters were or what role they played in British comics history. So, but, but sort of, it was a kind of thing that, like, if you recognise them, that's fine. But if not, well, here's a, a here's a romp of a story to kind of go along with. Anna, how much you know when when you're when you start drawing designing, how much were you looking, if at all, to sort of redesign or or modernize? I mean, you know, the present in this book is the '60s, but you know, uh, these characters going into this book. Hmm. You see, like I wouldn't say that I've redesigned anything. I was, I was pretty um, reliant on the original designs, mm-hmm. especially considering the fact that the oldest characters um, in the story they would be set in the sixties, which is not far away from when they originally from essentially. And obviously, they will have like a certain kind of touch and look that I give them as a person who draws them. Um, but it's interesting, like I, as I mentioned, like during the research, I've come across like so many interesting variations and variations, not necessarily in the actual design, but obviously in the style of how people approach drawing these characters, you know, like, I think that one of the very influential things that came my way, uh, were the comics, were the European digestive format comics. Because as it turns out, these characters were very well known in some European countries. Um, for example, like somebody from Sweden is very familiar with the spider, which to me was like a huge surprise, you know. So, um, yeah, I looked at those um, particular because I'm generally quite a fan of um, European comics, European approach, like the vast kind of variations of different styles and techniques as well. So I remember seeing one book specifically, I will not name the artist who was illustrating it. It was small, it was digestive, you know, like commando type of thing, like two panels per page. Um, and it was beautiful, beautiful brushwork. It was so loose, it was so distinct. Um, I think this is sort of like made me go for brush and inking those pages. I decided to utilize brush as well. Um, some artists would make it quite um, more detailed, a bit more um, precise with like ink pens and stuff. But the design it would pretty much be consistent, not um, only for the three main characters, right, but also for the spiders' uh, sidekicks, for um, um, Ardini and um, Professor Elham. Pronounce it, yes, pronounce it correctly. So. So these were actually two really interesting characters to draw as well. Um, also, when it comes to design, I have to admit I did have the Jack Stuff book on my table <laughs> when drawing the pages. I did look at it. Um, unfortunately, I haven't got a chance to read it properly yet. I've read some of the pages. You know, I was flipping back and forth through it. And again, um, Spider is just fascinating how, how iconic he is. You can recognize him if you're familiar. So yes, to answer the question, I wasn't focusing like on redesigning. Um, I was just like, I, I have this template, I have this blueprint I have to work with. These characters need to be easily recognizable for people. Um, it's just that it's just that the mix of kind of modern approaches and techniques and a bit of mix of digital with traditional, this is what gives it a slightly different and the fact that I'm in the street. But the designs I kept 
consistent with how we are original. No, no I was just going to say that I, I was really impressed with uh, what Anna did with the, her spider pages because obviously it, uh, I wasn't expecting her to be that familiar with the character, but but sort of uh, when when I, I saw the pages, she really captured the character, even though she's do, doing them in a very different style to how they'd been done sort of uh, in the 1960s comics that I uh, was familiar with. Uh, but it was still, that was the character. And he had that, that kind of same glint in his eye that, that was kind of, you know, I, I thought very spiderish, even though her uh, her work was much more brushworky than than the kind of uh, the original kind of inked kind of cross hatched kind of uh, work that was the part of the original drawing style. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Welcome. That's that's what makes every artist happy. Like if if you hear that the writer is satisfied, he likes work. You know that that's what's important. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's, it, it, it's great stuff, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. <laughs> like, to me, it was quite a bit of pressure, I must say, because uh, I knew that Paul Grace was a very renowned author and an artist himself, a professional who knows how to work with sequential art, specifically, you know. So, to, to me, it was quite intimidating. I, I was like, I hope I do a good job. <laughs> It's like sometimes, you know, like sometimes writers can be a little bit, uh, how do I say it? Well, not biased, but, you know, like um, sometimes like writers, they can be, they don't, they're not very familiar with drawing, right? So to them, pretty much any drawing is amazing and fascinating. <laughs> they, will, they will like it. But if you're working with a person who can draw himself, that's a completely different story. You want to do a good job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And you did. You did. I, I was Thank very you. pleased the whole thing. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Sorry, it's turning out to be a mutual appreciation society. Sorry about that. Yeah. We love to see it. Good, good, <laughs> good. It's good when it happens in the comics. You know, it's good. <laughs> we should value this moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you said, you mentioned that the 60s is very visually iconic. And so... I'm curious, is there more, less, or the same amount of research going into getting the look of the 60s, the, the clothes, the design of the, the world, as there is for doing the Judge Dread work that I've seen a lot of your stuff when doing research on getting the, the arc of the way things look in Mega City 1? Is it a mm -hmm. comparable amount of research to get those two things right, or is one different or more challenging? No, not really. Like I, I wouldn't really even say that they're both very challenging, if I'm honest. Because 2018, what's good about 2018? Like they gave the freedom for artists to visualize things in their own very unique way. So as long as there's a certain degree of like design continuity. Right, um, the versions of bread they're they're different. There's like the Man's Dread, there's Brian Boland's Dread. There are like so many different iconic dreads and red worlds specifically. You know, like as long as the kind of the general visuals are familiar to the readers. Same for the sixties. It's so iconic. Um, 
like to me, I probably didn't have to like look specifically into the 60s era, like 60s schools and interiors, because obviously, like I've come across those designs in the past. You know, I've looked at like all sorts of different materials. Of course, I looked a bit into fashion, for instance, so, like what kind of like look I would give to Jane Bond, what kind of costumes men would wear. Like, is there anything specific about this costume? Maybe there's like some detail that I need to know about. Um, maybe a little bit of like you know kind of cars that would be there in this specific year, even though there's not many cars pictured in this particular story, but they are there, you know. So I cannot draw like a modern day visual and pretend that it's fine, you know. So of course I had to look up certain things, um, but I I don't know. Like to me it was just um, a little bit of time dedicated. Uh, it's kind of enough to um, picture how I would like the image to be. Um, the only thing is that, like, I, I would say that, you know, Six Days is <laughs> design-wise such an iconic era. Like, there's so many things you can do with it. And sometimes when you draw, you, like, you visualize one thing, like you picture it like that. You think, oh, well, this is the color palette you can do, and this is, this is how this is going to look. Um, but the reality can sometimes be quite different from the image in your head, which is sometimes a bit sad. You know? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's good because like happy accidents can happen, and you can like take it, take this work to slightly different direction, maybe next level. But um, yeah, like it, it was maybe like the challenging part was maybe to stop at something specific. But ultimately, you do put it on paper, and what's there? Is there? Uh, I hope it makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely. Sense. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> um, you know, looking looking at your work for the first time, I feel like I'm seeing a clear, uh, you know, Mike Allred influence. And obviously, feel free to tell me that I'm wrong. Uh, you know, what what, what, what artists, which influence they get again? Uh, Mike Allred. I wouldn't say so. Okay. No, it's interesting because like sometimes people tell me that you know oh like uh, this reminds me of this or I can see influence of that and I'm like I'm like, no but it's interesting how you see things. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes people name names that I don't even know and I'm like I look at their work and I'm like yes I can see it myself but this is the first time I see this artwork. I can tell you sure. uh, and sorry for interrupting but. No, no, um, no. I would say that the main influence for me, even though it's probably, I don't know how clearly it is visible for people. And I think one ha would have to be kind of familiar with the British comics scene as well. But John Burns is a, like, I'm a fan of his work. Um, British comics creator. And like, uh, I think I was looking kind of a lot at his work. Um, throughout a prolonged period of time. I really like how he just depicts uh, human characters, you know, and I think that subconsciously something transfers there. Um, subconsciously, sometimes consciously as well, I will try to do something that um, a person like I admire would do. Like, And because this time I was working with brush, which was like, it's not a usual technique for me. You know, I don't normally work but I looked enough at John Burns' stuff and I was like, I'm going to try this. <laughs> Plus this European comic as well. 
rush work. I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it. And especially in Jane Bond's character, there are certain panels where her hair, for instance, they don't have a certain um, border to them, if you will. It's very kind of loose strokes that I think I definitely, definitely um, utilized after seeing John Burns's pages. Stuff like that. What other what other artists are are particular favorites for you? Oh, there's so many. There's so many. Like I think, like if I start, I will forget somebody. You know, it's just um, like I'm I'm an art fan. You know, some artists I wouldn't even remember the names. <laughs> um, but I would definitely say that John Burns is one of the like very influential artists for myself. Like I, I've got his art book you know, like collections, like comics, like I, I'm a huge fan of this old British, like girls comics style of drawing as well, you know, like sometimes these pages would be drawn by either like um, South American artists, uh, European artists, but they would appear in like British publications. Uh, for example, like I love Romero's work, I love Redondo's work, you know, like this huge, like iconic artist, of, like in, for like British comics in twentieth century, you know. Um, I would say that this, this to, to me is very important. You know, of course, I enjoy modern comics as well, and now there's like so many different approaches. But when it comes to this, this aesthetic of this like British girls' comics, like I'm, I'm all over it. So uh, I was I was curious when this at, at what point this became a a multi artist project. You know, Tom Foster obviously does the first few pages uh, in the first issue, and and how you, you went about determining sort of the division of labor of who gets to draw what. Well, that that was something that uh, wasn't really well. The the original idea was that uh, sort of a different artist would draw each each separate issue given that uh, sort of uh, it was sort of the, the first one is set in the 1960s second issue is set in the 1980s and the third issue is set in the modern day it was kind of like an idea to just just to kind of distinguish visually from uh, sort of each time period the the uh, sort of and, and sort of uh, that that kind of works for me, uh, but that that that's already been editorially established before uh, sort of uh, I was brought on board. When I wrote the first issue, I wanted to kind of set things up because I wanted to introduce uh, because I wanted to use uh, sort of uh, uh, a character uh, who was set in the Victorian age. Uh, sort of uh, uh, to, to kind of kick off the whole story. I wanted uh, to, to kind of uh, include him in the comic. And because uh, sort of he w didn't really cross over in time frame with uh, sort of the spider, it sort of had to be an introduction which didn't involve the spider, which, but, but basically he sort of uh, set up, kicked off the, the, the like storyline, which then carried on through the rest of the issues. And uh, so I assumed 
when I wrote that uh, sort of five page uh, start, that it would be done by the same artist who was doing the rest of the, the issue. It wasn't until uh, sort of uh, they got back to me sort of a few months after the, the, the first issue was written and said that uh, Tom Foster was drawing that, that first part that I realized they'd actually split it up even more so between like sort of within the issue but it wasn't like sort of within the issue. I expected that uh, the the artist who was working on the, the whole issue, which uh, uh, sort of uh, was Anna, I, I I would have thought she would have been drawing that part, but that was sort of uh, uh, sort of decided. Yeah, it's interesting. Like when I got offered the script, when I was sent the script. It was also already decided that Tom would be working on the first five pages. So the brief already mentioned that, you know, we've got Tom to draw the first introduction part. We want you to draw the 17 pages of the main kind of storyline. So, yeah, that was also part of the brief. At that current moment, I do not obtain any more information regarding the upcoming issues. <laughs> <laughs> and how are they are split? And if there's any split in there, all I know is that the second issue is going to be drawn by Jimmy Broxton, which is I'm very excited about because I love Jimmy's artwork. I really want to see that. Uh, but yeah, like uh, that split um, for me, it was already pre-decided as well. So just to be clear, I didn't read the script and went. Oh my God, the first five pages in the Victorian era, I cannot possibly draw this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there is nothing yeah. else to do. No, 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 that was not the case. No, no, no. It was, it was um, editorial decision, and I think it's a really good decision because, like, I love being at the same issue with Tom. Uh, Tom is like, he did really, really, like, very nice job on those first pages. Um, and it's interesting because our styles are so different. Like Tom is like so detailed, and you know it's definitely like, like ink pen work. It's very, it's very precise. It's very, very monolithic, if you will, very Victorian. And then I come in, and my my art takes you to a different era, and to a different art style, to a different technique as well. This brush, there's this ink pen. Uh, Tom's pages, they appear to be in kind of sepia, no color, with like one spot color. And mine is full color, digital, which adds this kind of sharpness to it. So, so it's interesting, for sure. And I hope, I hope that um, the readers will, will appreciate this editorial decision, will appreciate our artistic decisions. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, the, the the first issue starting off in black and white that was that was part of my original idea. That was in the script because uh, sort of I wanted to kind of uh, have the idea that, that that sort of it would have been like something that was from the original sort of nineteen sixties comic and and like sort of more evocative of an older time, which would have been printed in black and white rather than like sort of the full color, which I knew. That the rest of the comic would be be in, so I wanted to have sort of uh, it sort of differentiated that way. So sort of the the so, but yes, the split of artists still works well. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
you know, you're, you're telling a self-contained story here, you know, with characters who've been around for a while. We've already kind of talked about, you know, whether and, and, and ha- you know, not really having to pay too much attention to, to the comics that have gone before. But I was kind of curious. I wanted to kind of go through uh, each of, of the leads of this book and, and just kind of ask, you know, for one sort of like, to the extent that you know, what's sort of the weirdest thing or or most interesting thing about each of these characters for people who may not be familiar uh with them so i'm just going to kind of go down the list and you know no wrong answers here up to and including uh i don't know but uh you know what wh- what's the most interesting thing people should know about let's say janice stark to start uh sort of uh sort of the fact that he's got uh basically rubber bones and and kind of can can extract himself from like any situations which makes him this this world famous uh sort of uh, escape artist so he, there's, there's no trap that can hold him and that's a very important part for that like you have to know for the uh, uh for, for the uh, first issue all right uh next jane bond besides no relation <laughs> uh jane bond uh, sort of uh, like like i was saying earlier I, was, I know very little about jane bond but the fact that is that that sort of like as a teenager she was working for this kind of world police kind of uh, setup and uh sort of uh, so that there's a lot kind of uh, that has to be explained there i think and there's this sort of uh uh, I, I, there's a lot going off that you kind of think wouldn't be allowed nowadays in terms of child labour and uh, sort of, uh, but it's it's an interesting setup and sort of uh, uh, it it's something I would like to explore if if I ever got the chance to go back there. Uh, Steel Claw. Steel Claw. Oh, he's great, uh, but but horribly accident prone. <laughs> he's like uh sort of because he keeps having terrible uh, uh sort of uh laboratory accidents because he loses his hand and that has to be replaced by this metal claw and then that's not the and that's that's not his main story he then has another laboratory accident which then kind of uh, uh makes him invisible apart from the steel claw so you just see the steel claw floating about. So, so having become invisible, he then goes off to become like an adventurer uh, or a spy, which is probably just as well because he needs to get out of the laboratory because he's just having accidents there and it's not good for him. Okay, steel claw, terrible scientist. Uh, the spider. The spider. Uh, yeah, he's he's great, but he's he's a man of mystery. I mean, he can be basically uh sort of uh, i think the spider is whatever the reader wants him to be i mean the spider is whatever the spider wants him to be so sometimes he can be uh sort of a villain sometimes he can be a superhero and uh sort of and and he'll flip between the two depending upon how he feels when he gets up in the morning but uh sort of uh how or where he came from that's uh sort of uh that's a whole open story 
I've got my idea about who he is and what he is, but then I had to make I had to kind of establish that for myself when I started writing the characters. But I I haven't put that into the story because I don't want to impose that on anybody else who who might sort of have to come after me to to write the story and 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 upon the the, the reader. I mean, it's sort of you can make up your own mind as to who he is and what he is. I'm going to ask my one follow-up question here uh, in regard to the spider. What's with the metal bra? I don't know. It's <laughs> a very attractive item of what uh, sort of, uh, but yes, it, it, it's an unusual fashion accessory. But uh, Anna, since you had to draw it. She was there, there before Madonna, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there it is. There well, it is. It's interesting, you know, like I remember when the, this first issue got announced. Uh, I did come across some comments, obviously, I think, like written by people who never come across this particular character. Mm -hmm. You just read through the comment section, and there's like obviously, like, you know, like diehard fans, it's like, yay, spiders are coming back, you know, from like, from this like archives we've been waiting for this day to come. And then, like, among that, there's like, oh, why is the metal bravo? It's actually like, you know, like, speaking of like spider design, right? And metal bra specifically, there are many, many variations of the particular metal bra depending on who was drawing him. So, like, you had to like kind of lock one particular design that you're sticking to. Because when I was doing my research and I was like going through the pages, I did see that sometimes even the artists are like, they can't remember what's going on there. They, they sometimes forget certain parts, certain details, you know. Kind of changes throughout the pages. <laughs> so, no, I was just gonna say it's, it's a very complicated piece of uh, equipment uh, to, to actually draw. And, and sort of, I, I'm surprised that whoever designed that kind of uh, sort of did that because whenever I'm drawing something, I try to make things as simple as possible because I know I'm the one who's going to be having to draw them like sort of panel to panel to panel. And I would never in a million years come up with something that complicated to have to draw, which is why I'm quite, I was quite happy that I was asked to write the series and not to draw it. <laughs> I really wouldn't have had to, uh, the patience to be able to draw that sort of page after page for like sort of 17 or 24, 22 pages. Yeah, but it's interesting, it's British comics, you have Spider and you have Judge Dredd and you have Johnny Alpha, you mm. have this all elaborate, crazy costumes, you know, but it's interesting. I think this kind of costume design part is also this iconic, mm, like, business card of British comics as well, you know, like, on, only in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> Designed in the UK. Like this, this I, I, will, I, I will say, you know, just anybody who grew up reading American comics in the 90s when, uh, you know, there were pouches all over everything doesn't get to, to criticize fashion choices. You know, <laughs> if, th if this guy has invented a device to keep his chest cool, more power to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I wanted to add uh, about the spider as well. Interestingly, like his uh, personality and the character is like a saying that um, a king is made by his servants often. Mm -hmm. And on, like 
despite Spider, we also have his sidekicks. There is like very interesting dynamic between those three going on. It's interesting how like he as a character reflects against them, how he needs them around to essentially put put to life his like mastermind plans. Um, so they are kind of like an interesting, inseparable part from him as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I sort of, uh, I was I was quite surprised when I was writing it, just uh, sort of uh, how much more invested I became in the, uh, in sort of his henchmen, because they, they were like sort of, they, they, it, it was easier to bounce things off with, mm-hmm. with like sort of th- those characters and and sort of that th- those are my favorite bits of the comic it's, it's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Do, do things and uh sort of it became more difficult because uh, sort of uh sort of the, the way it was set up i knew that they were going to be in the 1960s and then in the 1980s sort of they weren't there anymore so in the next story, and sort of more so in the, the, the story afterwards, uh, sort of uh, which was set in the modern day, because obviously, obviously, sort of the, the spider himself doesn't age at all through the the, the series, but sort of uh, his henchmen, quite frankly, they they just sort of disappear. I mean, sort of you can leave it to your own imagination as to what happens to them. But it, it came became more difficult to actually write the spider because he didn't have anybody else to kind of bounce off then. So that's, mm. uh, I decided if, if I do any more stories, I'm going to have to reintroduce some other henchmen, some other mm. characters for him, because he needs other characters really to work well, I think. That's fascinating because it feels like when like drawing this clip and reading Spider's stories, these two characters, it almost feels like it's the, the dialogues uh, the conversations he has with them, it's almost like a conversation in his own head, almost like a conversation with himself, yeah. in a way. They're like just two mirrors. One is scientific, smart, and another one is um, very kind of self-conscious and insecure. That spider needs to fulfill his own personality. Yeah, and also it just gives him somebody that he can just hit, hit somebody that he can like have utter contempt for, but still mm-hmm. he needs them. He needs them to be able to kind of do certain things for him because he basically, he just lounges around and lets other people kind of do all the hard work and and, yeah. sort of, uh, and, and then he comes in and takes all the credit for everything that's been done. And I'm just curious, this is a, a sort of process question, because you recently did a, a Glarian short with Charlie Stickney for the upcoming Glarian hardcover. And there you mm-hmm. talked about doing that as traditional pencils with digital inks. What was your mm-hmm. process for this book? Was it all digital? Okay. Was it more traditional? I'm just... No, 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 no. I wanted to do it pretty much all traditionally, apart from the colors. And I quite succeeded, you know, like I've got most of, most of the pencils, they are um, done traditionally. 
uh, apart from maybe a couple of pages on the last page for sure, I had to do digitally because I was traveling at the time. So I just couldn't take my old setup with me. I had to I had to do it on my iPad. And same with things, like most pages having tradition uh, traditionally, yes, with a brush. And again, some some bits are done digitally just because of the logistics of it. And then the color I was always planning on doing digitally. Um, so that was that. Um yeah, and I think it kind of <laughs> gave it an interesting sort of feel because it's quite easy to color digitally, digital line art. But I I found it very, how would I say, very, very unusual to color digitally traditional art, especially done by brush. Uh, because you have to like scan the artwork at the very high resolution, 600 DPI, you know. So when you work traditionally, you see the whole page, which is very convenient, and it's already bigger than how it's going to be printed. So you you see like in a bigger version of it, and it looks, you know, like line work looks fine, for instance. But as soon as you scan it, uh, 600 DPI, you open it on the screen, and you can zoom in uh, almost infinitely to it. And you see the paper texture, and you see like the little kind of artifacts, like dust, like so, so, like something stupid like that, you know. And applying very crisp, sharp digital color on top of that feels very conflictuous. It did feel to me. It was much easier to you know when just coloring digital line art. Yeah, so it was very difficult like to dissociate from like realizing that what you're seeing on the screen right now is not how it's going to be printed. Once it's on the actual comic page, you will not see those artifacts and the line will be smoother. You will not see all the roughness of it. So just kind of like, you know, process-wise, it was a bit uh, hard to kind of dissociate from. It was very like, in my eyes, you know, it was like, what's going on with the line art? And then you print it, it looks fine. On the, six, uh, on the 600 DPI like resolution screen, it looks like, what have I done? <laughs> you know, I'm the color it. Um, so that was kind of a little bit like kind of challenging for me process wise, um, and I have like experience like like you know for instance coloring like the art which is done by ink pen, and ink pen is obviously more precise thin, whereas brush is like volume to it and layers and the line line thickness is never really consistent if you work with ink. So many kind of little little things that can get in your head and can become quite disruptive. But you just do it, you print it out, and then you see the results. Penultimate question, uh, what are you reading right now? Co comics, print, prose, whatever. <laughs> well, why don't you go first? Okay. I, well, I, I'm basically been reading a whole load of old comics. Uh, but that, that's uh, sort of, uh, I, I'm sort of, uh, I, I tend to wait until sort of, uh, Things come out, uh, so because I I, I don't uh, live near a comic shop, so I, I'm I'm totally unfamiliar with what's happening, sort of uh, at the moment in in terms of comics. It's quite all right, Anna. How about you? How about me? Oh, I have such an extensive to read list. 
There are so many things I want to read, <laughs> and I just can't get to it. You know, like I've been, like I'm pretty much drawing every day, and when I'm outside, like of this drawing workspace, I want to go for a walk <laughs> and see what's happening outside the flood for a change. You know, so it's kind of it, because like the books I want to read, they require they do require some time. Uh, it's not just it's not a book that you can just like flip through. You look at the art and you're like, oh, that looks that looks great, and I don't really care about the story. Ha ha ha! You know, this is a piece of entertainment. No, for instance, like uh, things like uh, Judge Anderson Shambhala. Like I really want to dedicate time. I want to reread like the full collection of Nemesis the Warlock. You know, things like that. It's, it's things that do. Um, they do require some silence and dedication to them so i wish i was reading things um more often but it's just been quite busy with work and it, it's it, like i can never like sit down and just chill with a comic book and to, to, quite frankly you know what i i do have jack's tough book as well which i want to read <laughs> it's it's there <laughs> and I, i've seen like most like i see pretty much all the pages when working you know like i've been like picking up on the dialogue but i want to actually sit down and and read it from start to finish because at the time like as i said like i was never like a kind of very in-depth comic reader but i would read those comics that i would buy i would maybe not be very familiar with the general continuity but the issue i bought i would read from you know i would read it reread it several times because i didn't i did enjoy it and now it's just drawing you know like you you sit down you like you start drawing an eye, two hours later, you finish drawing an eye, and there's the rest of the face. <laughs> you just don't know where, it, where the time went. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but I wish I wish I just, I, I need to like, dedicate some time and just get on with the list of things that I have, you know. So. But um, books, I, I do have like books on my working table regardless, you know. So even if I don't read them, I look at art. And I look at pages, I look at sequential art, and I look at illustrations specifically. Like, for example, as I said, John Burns's like, um, art collection is always there. So whenever I feel down, I just pick it up and I look through it and it makes my mood a bit better. <laughs> well, uh, folks, this has been a fantastic time. Final question as we release you back into the world. Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with Smash and uh, everything else that you got going on? Uh, I'm on Instagram. It's a double n y a dot Marzova. You can find me there. Uh, unfortunately, I don't post as often as I would like to because when you work on projects, you can't bother to talk about them. But I do post like news and stuff and some work in progress, which is which can be fascinating. I'm on Twitter as well, which is now X, currently. So it's underscore Anna Marzova, all in one word. Uh, I do share things there. And I also have a website, anamarazova.uk, where you can see examples of my work, uh, illustration, sequentials, and quite frankly, all the links to other social media and how to find me. I'm there. Okay. Come and say hi. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, how about you? Okay, well, I'm on uh, Twitter, or X as we know how to call it. Uh, uh, you don't have to. You don't have to, <laughs> But it still says Twitter at the bottom of the thing when it comes up, so I, I still call it Twitter. So I'm on Twitter as uh, Mr. Grist, which is like all one word, and uh, that has sort of occasional things that happen.
happened to me and like sort of jokes and things that I, th I think of at the time. And also I'm occasionally on threads that, that sort of uh, just seeing how that goes again as Mr. Grist. All right. Very good. Paul, Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash ComicsXF, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode, a $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A, and a shout-out at the end of every episode, a $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout-out, a $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, a $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Will Redmond, Tobias Carroll, Natalie Jordan, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, in the 1970s, Stan Lee reportedly used to maintain a collection of toupees that made it appear as if he was growing his hair out. Excelsior! WNQA!